I guess you're aware of the fact this is Father's Day. And uh, my wife said, be sure you're as hard on uh, fathers as you are on the women. <laughs> and I reminded her, we weren't here Mother's Day, so I wasn't hard at all. But I am here Father's Day, and one of the great needs of our country and our culture and in Christian churches is uh, fathers. Um, in many cases, fathers are missing. They, A-W-O-L. They are not there. And a father has to be a father. And according to the scriptures, uh, he's the head of the home. And he is the one who sets the pattern for the one, for the home, and spirituality and making uh, the income for the home and guiding and leading the children and helping their wives and mothers, uh, helping them with the children, right? And also uh, being able to put his foot down and keep it down. We seem to uh, be more important, uh, seems in child rearing early years, to be more relational rather than guiding. And there has to be that too, but obviously, no has to mean no at some point. And I, I often say, what is there about no you don't understand? I have to say that to a few salesmen. <coughs> when I say no, that's what I mean. And your children should know what yes is and what no is. And doesn't the Bible say, let your yes be yes, yes and your no, no. Got to make decisions, men. And I thank God for all the men that do. And our church is an example of that in many cases. And we can learn from one another that we are dads and we do lead them. And there is a time when we are their friends. But there is a time when we are their fathers too. And children need to know that there is a father in home that sets the pace and uh, is the strength of the home. And uh, I think our mothers and our wives, men, want a man who makes wise decisions, who is firm, but fair. And our children want that as well. So may that be an encouragement to you, men and women, uh, that we establish homes where dad is in control, where dad leads a home, but also in, in conjunction with his wife, obviously, it isn't that he makes decisions totally without his wife's input and, uh, and also decision-making. So as I hope that's hard enough and soft enough. And as a <clears throat> grandfather, uh, we had a granddaughter this week that gave birth to twins. So we were excited about that. These twins are, I always forget the, the weight, Faith. What is the weight? Seven and six pound twins. So uh, that's a handful. And they have a son, Tucker, who is not yet two. And their son's name are Archer and Hunter. So you know what permeates that family. <laughs> so uh, they're all excited. Uh, Rick has, uh, what, seven grandchildren and they're all boys. <coughs> So uh, any girl born in that family will be queen, I can tell you that. 
Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to 1 Colossians. There is no 2 Colossians, so you should be able to. But there is a chapter 1, and that's what we'll look at this morning. Let us pray. Lord, we come to you this morning and we are a needy bunch. We recognize, Father, that everything we have and need is from you. And we praise you for it and thank you for it. And we still have needs, Lord, and we pray that we would take advantage of prayer this morning and realize what an avenue of grace we have with you. So help us in our study, and may we enjoy what we have before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter, if I were to label this chapter, chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, I would label it the exaltation of Christ. Because there are truths in this chapter that you really don't get full in the other parts of the Bible. Even though it's all there, it's, it all points to it. But here it's really concise when he talks about Jesus Christ and who he is and the embodiment of the person. And Paul has never been to Colossae. He's never been to this church. He doesn't know them by name. Uh, they have not seen him. Obviously, they've heard of him. Ephesus is not too far away. And Paul spent considerable time in the city of Ephesus building up the church. And so Paul, the ministry of the church at Ephesus, the believers spread to two other towns in the valley, the Lycus Valley, and it went to Colossae and it went to Laodicea. So two churches formed out of the church of F, uh, out of Ephesus. And he's writing to the one in Colossae. And uh, a one who was very instrumental in the church of Colossae by the name of Epaphras. Epaphras came and Epaphras told him all that was going on in Colossae. Even. So he was very much in touch. And so he says in uh, the, the first verse of Colossians 9, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, have not seen to pray for you and to ask. Now here's what Paul heard. He heard this was a church that had faith in Christ. It was known for its faith. The love which you have for all the saints, he heard of its love. They loved the saints. There was, it was a loving church. He also heard in the first few verses of this chapter, he heard the word of truth, the gospel, was what permeated that church. This was church, church known as holding the gospel, that it was faithful in all things. Furthermore, he heard that they were continually bearing fruit and increasing. This was not a stagnant church. This was not a stagnant church at all, or a static church. This church was growing and growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So he heard that. And then he also heard that they understood the grace of God in truth. They knew what grace was. They were a gracious church. They were willing to give to one another. Each person acted in grace. The church was a gracious church. And so he heard all these things. And he's excited. And in chapter 1, verse 9, we read, he prayers, prays for them. And he prays for them regularly. 
And he get the, so he gives us the reason for his prayer is all of these things that he has heard. Now he hasn't seen them, so this is an intercessory type prayer. You can pray for people you've never seen or know, don't you think? And you ought to. Hear of somebody, we ought to be praying for them constantly and encouraging them even though we've never met them. And he says to them, uh, I've been, I've been, we've been praying for you. We have not stopped praying for you. You are on our prayer list. And he says, for prayer, this was a constant prayer. They consistently sought God on their behalf. Now, prayer is the normal word for prayer here. It's a normal word for entreating God personally. This was not merely a formality. This was a prayer that was free and, and said what needed to be said. It's interesting to me, sometimes our prayers, we go into a prayer mood or prayer mode rather than just talking to God. We pray normally and then suddenly we get into thee and thou in prayer. And, and it becomes more than just a conversation with God, which prayer is. It's a prayer that involved personal involvement, which made it a prayer of devotion and a prayer that is worshipful. You know, when you pray and when you come to God in prayer, I, I trust you have your times when you pray, a normal praying time. Daniel had his prayer time, and we read in the book of Daniel, three times a day. In fact, they couldn't find anything wrong with Daniel. They wanted to get Daniel out of the government, and they wanted to get Daniel out of the way because he worshiped God, so they figured out a way that they would do that, and they told Darius that if anybody prays to any other person but you, they ought to be put in the lion's den. So he made that edict. And here's Daniel, part of, part of the government, part of the staff, and Daniel, when he heard it, in the morning he did what he always did. He opened up his windows, looked toward Jerusalem in the morning, and prayed. At noon he opened the windows again and prayed toward Jerusalem. And in the evening, he did the same thing. Nothing was going to deter Daniel for praying. And guess what they did to him? They threw him in a den of lions. And even Darius realized, you know what? God may save this guy. And the lions didn't eat him because he was all of grit and bones. Now, that's not the reason, but... But uh, when they threw the people that accused him into the lion's dead, they immediately devoured them. Prayer is an important part, as we said this morning, of our spiritual growth. And Paul prayed that way. Now, the last part of the verse and the rest of the chapter is going to talk to us about the content or the purpose of their prayers. And his prayer is very interesting. Now, he prays for physical needs. We pray for people who are sick. We pray for people who have financial problems or marital problems or people who are suffering in one way or another. And we pray for broken bones and things of that nature. But it's interesting to hear Paul's prayer and to study Paul's prayer in the New Testament. What exactly does he pray for? If Paul were praying for Countryside Bible Church, here's what he'd pray. Take a look at the first one. <clears throat> the knowledge of God's will. He says that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will 
in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The true believer lives in a sin-cursed world. So the question often comes, why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? And what is the purpose of the church? But Paul starts out with the fact that we need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. Most of us want to start out with a precept rather, or start out with a practice rather than a precept. We do not realize that in order to really live the Christian life and really to fully understand the excellencies of Christ, we need knowledge. You are what you are, what you believe. It says in Proverbs, as a man thinks, so is he. So when you come to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you become a new creation, and you have now the capacity to understand God's will, to understand God's purpose. And so Paul prays that you would be filled, and the word filled here is filled to the brim. Filled to the cup that is full in every way. And what it is to be filled with is the knowledge of God's will. Now what is the knowledge of God's will? And how do we know God's will? It starts in Genesis 1-1 and it ends in Revelation 22. The more you know and believe and grasp what the Word of God is saying, the more your life will become filled and the more understanding you will have about the world in which you live. When you say the world basically living in ignorance and what we're seeing going on. But when you read the word of God, you realize that there's much more than just being saved from hell. There's much more things God has in store for you. And you can look at the nature itself and see the glory of God. And you have the ability to sit down with someone who's suffering or hurting and be able with the help of the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and point out exactly where they are and what it is. Can you sit down with someone? Let's just go real simple here this morning. How many of you could say to someone right now, if they would ask you, how can I get to heaven? What would you say? Call Rod, Bob, or Aaron. Or could you say, here, let me show you in God's Word. And could you take them to some verses that say, here is what God says. We're sinners. We need to repent. And you need to place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Could you put a verse to it? That's basic. And the more you begin to read the Word of God, the more you look at it, and, you, and I don't mean just reading it for reading's sake, but say to the Lord, I want to understand your word. And you place yourself in a position where you can hear the word Sunday by Sunday by Sunday and grow in grace and knowledge of your Lord and Savior. We have a lot of pablum that is being preached today. Do you know the word of God? And that is the purpose of this whole thing. The more you know of the Word of God, and the word here is epigenosis, it's a word that means full knowledge. Now you can study the Bible. Seven hours, or it should be, what is it, 24-7? All your life, 
And you'll never comprehend this book totally. This is an infinite piece of literature written by God, the Holy Spirit, to men. I remember when I read the book, Lassie Come Home. I read that book three or four times. But I don't read it anymore. I know it by heart. There's nothing else to learn. I can read books that I thought were important, and I have, and they're setting in my library. Uh, I don't need to read them anymore. But this book just keeps coming. And this book just keeps opening new avenues. And it's like when you used to set up dominoes, remember that? You'd set them up and then you'd click the first domino and it'd just go all the way to the end. And I've seen some unbelievable situations where that has happened, where they have set it up professionally and they run all kinds with it. That's the way this book is. All at once it flips over something in your mind and suddenly everything opens up. Wow! I never, I never saw it in this light before. And even today, I, as I study the scriptures, all at once I see things opening up. Uh, we're going to have a Bible study Wednesday night on uh, finish up the uh, doctrine on the kingdom. So I've been boning up for it again. And you know, I, I've learned a lot more since I quit. But getting to know, just understanding the kingdom, it just opens up venues of all kinds of things that are taking place. It just opens up the whole scripture. And we have other doctrines that are like that. The more you know of it, it just begins to open more and more and more about God. And we'll never exhaust the knowledge that God has given to us, it's full knowledge in all spiritual wisdom. When we talk about spiritual wisdom, we're talking about how to live life. We're talking about understanding the providence of God. Understanding why it does rain and why it doesn't rain. Why we have illness and we don't have illness. It gives us understanding of what's taking place in our own government. It gives us understanding what's taking place in the life of individuals. It just opens up everything for us. It's just unbelievable how God works. And he says, I want you to know my will. I want you to understand who, and am, who I am and how I operate. Jesus said in John 6, 38, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. When we have full knowledge of his will, it really makes us as individuals be what we are to be. I don't, we had an alumni meeting uh, with my class and a few other classes this last week. As you can see, I, got, I went into a dermatologist, dermatologist and he busted my face up. And I walked in there with all kinds of bandages on my face. And I told the uh, reason I have these bandages is because I've got skin cancer because as a kid, I wanted a strong tan, and I'm very pale skin. And I'd burn and peel and burn and peel all the time. Because I wanted to impress my kid, the kids I was going to school with. Only to find out I didn't impress anybody. <laughs> so why worry about it, teenagers? If you're in high school or junior high and you want to impress people, Forget it. The only person you need to impress is God. And if in that process, you'll impress the people around you. 
The more we try to press people, the worse off we're going to be. But when we understand the will of God, we understand full knowledge of the will of God, we realize we're exactly who God made us to be. And God is going to take our talents and use us for his honor and glory. We're going to have wisdom as well. We're going to have wisdom. For he says, in this passage, he says, For you, all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's an act of a mind. It's an act of a mind to know. So Paul said in Acts 20, verse 27, I didn't shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. That's the purpose of the church. We just can't major on one topic. We're to teach the whole counsel of God. The people in our congregation ought to know what the will of God is for them because of their own study and the encouragement of the teachers in the body of Christ. Turn with me to a very familiar passage, and maybe you know it by memory. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Having the full knowledge of God results in spiritual wisdom and comprehension of what's going on. Wisdom implies critical thinking about the complexities of life and spirit-led understanding of the Word of God. Life's complex. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired or God-breathed. would be a good word there. By God, he superintended it when the men wrote the scriptures and is profitable for teaching, for, under, for reproof, correction, for rebuking, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be what? Adequate. Equipped in every good work. That's what the Word of God does. Makes you adequate. You may be doing a job now, but as you learn more and more of the Scripture, your job becomes fuller and fuller and more growth and understanding in it. Whatever you do. Whether you're a farmer, secretary, housewife, father, or whatever. You want to know what will make you a better father? Knowing God's will fully. What will make you a better farmer? Knowing God's will fully. What will make you a better truck driver? Knowing God's will fully. You can go carpenter. You can go nurse. You can go teacher, whatever. Who makes the best teachers? Who makes the best truck drivers? Who makes the best workers? Verse 10 we read, the believer's growth through 10 and 11. And he talks about the manner of life in verse 10. So that you would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Here it is again. Knowledge. 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 I've had people say to me, don't tell me all the doctors, just give me the results. You're not going to know all the results unless you know the doctor and you believe them. Now, you may know them and you may be able to rattle them off. Are they really true in your life? And that's one thing I like about the Lord. 
he, uh, he teaches us something, then he gives us the test. When I was in seminary, we had two tests a year, or two tests a semester. You went first nine weeks, and then you got a test over that particular material. Then you went another nine weeks and got the test. And you could study for them and cram the night or two days before, which I found uh, I had to do. But when you, when you learn something with the Lord, he tests you right off the bat. When he teaches you a truth and you believe that truth, guess what? You're going to be tested on it. Uh, Dr. Whitcomb was a brilliant guy, tested us every day. We had to read the scriptures for the class that we were studying. Uh, for example, in the book of Genesis, we had to read the book of, that we were studying that morning, and we had five questions. That was your grade. So you came to class ready to take the test. And you know what? You kept up. And that's the way God operates with us. He teaches you something, and guess what? You're going to be tested real quick. You say, I, believe, I have learned that God provides every need. Next day, is he? Is he? What did you learn yesterday? You'll provide every need. Lord, yeah, I learned that lesson yesterday. It's true today. It'll be true tomorrow. It'll be true forever. That we might walk in a manner. Word walk it means a manner of life in the scriptures. For example, it's used quite a bit in scriptures. In Galatians 5, 16, it says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you'll not carry out the desires of the flesh. Ephesians 4.17 This I say, or so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you receive from instruction of, as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, that you may excel and more. So we have to have a walk that emulates Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.6 The one who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same manner as who walked? Jesus. How would Jesus perform uh, in an action where you bought something and it wasn't exactly what you were told and you had to go back? How would Jesus respond to that? How would Jesus respond to words that were told, told him that were really harsh? How would, you know, it's a simple thing, but really, how would Jesus handle this? Um, we need to think about that. Where to walk as he walked. And that is a manner that pleases God. God is pleased by that. This kind of walk is pleasing to the Lord. This kind of walk is uh, one of obedience. How do we please God in walking in the Lord in our families? This is Father Day. Fathers, how are you pleasing your family and walking worthy in the Lord? What does it look like? I've learned a long time ago, you never know what's going on in the four walls of homes. So what does your home look like, Dad?
How is your walk in that home today? The next thing we see he prays for, that they would be bearing fruit, in verse 10, the last part, they would be bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Uh, we used to sing a song, Every Day with Jesus. Remember that song? It's sweeter than the day before. That should be true in our lives. We should be a better Christian today than we were yesterday. Tomorrow than today. We ought to be growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if Paul were praying for countryside, he'd say, bearing fruit, this is my prayer for you, bearing fruit in every good work. What is a work? It's what you are. First of all, there's a spiritual work in your life in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is, say it with me, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. You manifesting that? Am I manifesting that? This is, a, this is like a chain. If one of these virtues in this particular verse is missing, you're missing the whole thing. You've all heard it say uh, on the farm, a chain is no stronger than weakest link. The fruit of the Spirit is no good. It's no stronger than the weakest link in here. That's becoming full knowledge. These ought to be exercised by the Spirit as an outgrowth of our willingness to know God's will. That's what He wants. That's God's will. The issue isn't right now whether you should go to the mission field or whether you should go to the pastorate. The issue right now is this operative in our lives. We read it last Sunday or a Sunday before. The fruit is in and of the life of the believer. John 15, verse 5 to 6. Turn with me to that passage. 1 John 15, 5 to 6. John 15, 5 to 6. I am the vine, you are the branches. Who abides in me, and I am them, he bears much fruit, for apart from me, you can do nothing. All right. Simple truth. If you're a branch of a fruit tree, let's just take an apple tree. If you're a branch of a solid apple tree, what will you do? You'll bear apples. Does the apple tree have to sweat it out? Does the apple tree say, I gotta pray, make sure I get these apples out? It bears what it's supposed to be because it's an apple tree. And if you're a Christian and you belong to the vine, branch, the vine itself, as a branch you'll do what? You'll bear fruit. You ever heard of this verse? By your fruit you'll know them. You'll know they're a Christian by what? 
their fruit. Furthermore, he says in that passage, if anyone does not abide in me, is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. Now, he continues on that line and he tells us in this passage, I guess I didn't go that far, but he says, anyone that's bearing fruit, what does he do with them? He prunes it. Now, I've, I've driven in, uh, in the... Uh, Napa Valley in California in the winter and you drive there and at the end of the road just a pile of branches which they have pruned from the grapevine. Now doesn't that seem wrong to you that you would take a good vine and cut off a bunch of branches? Why do you do that? To bear more fruit. If you have too many branches and too much other stuff on that tree, the fruit is not as large and not as sweet. And you do that with a fruit tree. I remember my dad, I don't think he knew a thing about how to prune a tree. He just went into a tree and snip, snip, snip. And he'd always bear more fruit, but I don't think he had any idea what he was doing other than he knew it had to be done. So when we're bearing fruit, sometimes God snips us back so we'll bear more fruit. And we talked about it this morning in suffering. Just one way. Help us bear more fruit. Then he says in verse 10, part of that, increasing in the knowledge of God. Growing in full knowledge. Now I think he has the idea of a fruit tree here too. You uh, have planted corn and beans here in the last couple of months. And a couple more months, you'll harvest. Once you harvest the bean and the corn, what happens to the stalks? They die. But a fruit tree keeps on bearing fruit year after year after year. And that's what he wants in your life. You just don't come to a stage and stop. I've heard people say, in church, I've been in church long enough to hear this. Well, I've served my time in Sunday school teaching kids. I want to rest. You're just when you're getting good, then you rest. Is that what God intended? You know, we as are, who are retired or should be retired, we who are of that age, we have more to offer than ever before. If you've been growing in grace, and you have been growing in grace since you're 20 or 30 or 40, by the time you're 60, 50, and 70, you ought to have more to offer than you ever had before. Right? You know more Scripture now than you've ever known. You've been through the experiences of life. You can sit down with a teenager. You can sit down with somebody who's newly married. You can sit down with somebody who's struggling. And you can impart to them the truth that God has given to you in the work that he's given you and me to do. Increasing in the knowledge of God. Growing in what is trustworthy. Take a look at 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, verse 12 and following. 
1 Corinthians 2, 12 to 16 and following. Or just 12 will go to 16. Paul tells the Corinthians, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, we've received, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may, what? Know the things freely given to us by God. God wants to give us His truth. He's not in heaven saying, i got this little bit of knowledge here I don't want to share with you. He says, I've got all the knowledge that ever, ever existed and I want to share everything with you so you know all about me, so you know all who I am. Take us all eternity to learn that. And when we get to eternity, it's not going to be sitting on a bench somewhere or on a brook with our feet in the water and we're playing a ukulele. We're going to be actively serving the Lord. There's going to be art, music, and everything when you really study the kingdom that is yet to come. We're going to be socializing like we've never socialized before. Literally. God wants us to do that now. He wants us to enjoy our life and share what He's given to us. He freely gives us this thing. Verse 13. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. What great conversations can you have? with somebody who really knows the Word and you can sit down and interchange with them about God and about all His good things. What a beautiful conversation. Rather than going home and say, I wish we wouldn't have said those things. I wish we wouldn't have talked about the relatives who weren't here at our reunion. But the natural man, on the other hand, verse 14, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. They're spiritually hidden from him. But look at verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things. You can see something and see the matter of it. You can look at somebody and say, something is seriously wrong here. Somebody is hurting you. You can appraise the situation. You understand why it isn't green. You understand why we're in war. You understand why our government is not acting like we'd hope it would. We understand this because we understand what's going on in the world and we understand God's will. He who has spiritual appraises all things. Yet he himself is praised by no one. People don't understand us. People at the reunion say to me, why, they don't say it, but they're thinking, why would he go in the ministry of all things? Years ago I had a conversation with a physician from Baton Rouge, who and I, he and I got stuck on a ski lift. I said, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a physician down in Baton Rouge. What do you do? I said, I'm not going to tell you. So the minute I tell you, you're not going to talk to me. No, come on. No, not telling you. Come on, it can't be that bad. Were you in jail or what? <laughs> I said, worse yet. I'm a preacher. 
quiet. So I said, see what I told you? And he looked at me and he said, why would you do that? I said, I'll tell you why. See this beauty out here? You want to know who made it? And why he made it? And who it is who's the creator of the world? I want to tell people about that. And he looked at me and said, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. They don't understand it. But look at the last verse there. For who has the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? We have the mind of Christ right here. We have the understanding of what the Creator is doing. We have an understanding how the Creator has taken a fallen world and restoring the whole thing. We're going to talk about that later in this chapter. He's going to reconcile the world to Himself. What does that mean? God is in the business of restoring what it fell, what Adam and Eve have. And He's making it so that Adam and Eve and his children, who are believers, will be exactly what God wanted them to be. You think the Garden of Eden, which was lost and destroyed, was something you haven't seen anything yet. And you will. You will. Something greater than the Garden of Eden. Life will be such that we can't even describe it except in negatives. No crying, no death, no this, no that. He doesn't tell us all of it or we wouldn't want to stay here at all. Verse 11. Strengthen with all power the abilities according to his glorious might for the attending of all steadfastness, patience, joyously. We spent a lot of time here, but this is a present tense. We've been strengthened. When were you strengthened? When you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You have all the strength you need from the point of salvation to live all your life till your death. Or the coming of the Lord. You know, we're just not availing ourselves of it. We're to pray for wisdom and understanding but we have the strength you can't change people I can't change people but I have the strength and the inner strength given to me by God to change what I am if you're here complaining about other people and now they're trading you you can't change those people but you can change you and you can change and I can change our attitude toward them God has given us that inner strength aided by the Holy Spirit. They didn't have that in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit who prompts us and aids us and makes us a new creature in Christ growing every day. Strengthened, how? With all power. What does all mean? All means all. That's all all means. Think of it. We act like we're wimps. We act like, I don't know, I'm going to make it. God has given us the power to face today, and if we live tomorrow, and if we live till Tuesday, Tuesday, He'll give us the strength. We've got to avail ourselves of it. 
And he'll give us the wisdom. That's what Paul's prayer is. All strength, he says, with all power. How powerful is God, for heaven's sake? All you have to do is look at nature. Doesn't it scary sometimes when you see some of the summer storms that we used to have? <laughs> and you see that roll cloud coming? And since I've lived here, I've even seen a tornado, believe it or not. And I saw one in Hutchinson, Kansas, tore up some houses, the people we lived in. Powerful tornadoes. How about a hurricane? How about earthquakes? Powerful. In Tonga, just a few days ago, they had a seven point something earthquake. We didn't hear about it. But I'm telling you, if we had a seven point earthquake in the United States, it would do very serious damage. What can you do to stop the earth from shaking? Or rolling as it sometimes does. Like a wave on the ocean. Throwing everything in disarray. Powerful. Just to remind us how powerful he is. We have that available to us. He says, for the attaining of all steadfastness, being stable. God gives us the courage to remain stable in a world that's running in 40 different directions at the same time. Remember when the children of Israel were being led out by Moses and they stood at the Red Sea and they turned around and here comes Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh's army is right behind him. What did Pharaoh's army tend to do with the Israelites? Feed them? Blessings? No. They had evil intentions on mine, and the people said, what are we going to do? You let us out of God here to die? What did Moses do? He said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And when everything comes at you in mass, stand and see God do His work. Watch him. Trust him. He gives us that steadfastness and patience. Oh, that's a tough one. Patience. I, you know, I have to confess, I have to work on that one. I get impatient when I'm standing in line waiting to eat in a restaurant. I get very impatient, and I got to recognize God has a purpose for this. The word patience is two words: remain and under. Remain under the pressure. Be steady about it. We had a Bible study Thursday morning, and Wendy's was supposed to be open at seven, and they weren't. Guess what we were doing? Right on the door. Weren't we guys? Yeah. yeah, we were, weren't we? But be patient. Things don't always happen overnight. But there's a song, country song says, even though the Lord is late, he's always on time. He's always on time. At the last moment. 
but he will rescue us at the last moment. He loves to do that. He loves to take us to the nth degree. 1 Peter, I got to quit. I'll pick it up next week. Two weeks. This is so rich I hate to quit. According to the glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness, patience. You like that last word, that verse? What does it say? Joyously. We talked about it this morning. How much joy is there? Do you enjoy your Christian life? Do you enjoy your Lord? Do you enjoy your God? Do you enjoy His Word? Do you enjoy your life? You should. It's nothing more than a preparation for eternal joy forever. Let's stand for prayer. Lord, I love you with all my heart, my soul, and mind. And yet, Father, I find myself struggling in life not full of understanding always or steadfastness or patience, but I thank you, Father, that you've been patient with me. I thank you, Father, for your steadfastness, for your truth. I thank you, Father, that you're willing to teach us all things. It doesn't end. As long as we live, we can learn. And then when we get to be with you, Lord, we'll learn forever. A learning process, a spiritual understanding that will never cease. And we'll have a grasp of all the eternal new heaven and new earth. Wow. But if someone's here without Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they'll see none of this. This all seems like foolishness to them. Why would a person even come here and hear this, they would say. Father, we pray the Spirit of God would move on their heart. And they'd realize they've missed the boat and they've sinned. And they've come short of the glory of God. And we pray that they would repent and turn their mind and put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the only one who can save them and the only one who can make them a new creature who understands God and who loves Him with all her heart. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.